Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome to another episode of the Addy Hour. I did want to start off today just acknowledging all of our listeners, all of you who've been listening over these last few weeks. Definitely appreciate the notes that people have sent. It's been really encouraging to hear how encouraging these conversations have been for you, how things have resonated with you, what you've learned from them, uh, for the inspiration as well. And so just want to acknowledge, acknowledge that and thank you for all of your support in these conversations so far. Today, I'm really excited. We're going to be jumping deep into this conversation at the intersection of mental health and faith. And today, it's one of those where we have four unique individuals in the room. So I'm a little bit curious to see what's going to happen when we have a pastor, a psychiatrist and a theologian, a social worker, and a neuroscientist all together in the same space. I think that's a conversation that could go a lot of different directions, but I think it's going to be really, really fun and informative for us as we really dig into these, these topics and conversations today. So with that, I'd like to go ahead and welcome our three guests. The first is Michael Walren Jr., also known as Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike is the senior pastor of the First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem. He's a prolific and sought-after teacher and preacher, a visionary, a cultural architect, and a game changer. Pastor Mike has lots of accolades that he's accumulated over the years, too numerous to list here. But I did want to mention that in 2015, Mayor de Blasio did name Pastor Mike as the first chair of the New York City Clergy Advisory Council. And Pastor Mike has also been involved in a lot of different initiatives in the community, two that I just want to highlight. In 2012, his church launched the Dream Center, which provides over 25 completely free programs to the Harlem community, to its members all of all ages, races, and backgrounds. In 2016, he also opens the Hope Center, the Healing on Purpose and Evolving Center, which is the first faith-based mental health facility in Harlem. So we're deeply just honored and thankful for the work that he's been doing in the community over the years and grateful that he's here to join the podcast today. Thanks so much for being here, Pastor Mike. Thank you for having me. Of course. Our second guest is Dr. Green. Dr. Lena Green is a clinical social worker a psychotherapist, and a fatherhood practitioner who currently serves as the executive director of the Hope Center. And Dr. Green has also earned lots of different accolades over the years. Did want to mention one in particular. In 2019, Dr. Green received the National Association of Social Workers, New York City's chapter Social Work Impact Award. And this award is presented to a social worker who exemplifies a commitment to social justice, equity, 
empowerment, and civil rights through their work, research, advocacy, practice, embodiment of the social work profession, and also their dedication to communities and individuals they serve. So again, someone who's been deeply invested in this work over the years, and we're grateful to be able to have Dr. Green join us on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And our third guest is Dr. Warren Kinghorn. Dr. Kinghorn is a psychiatrist who teaches at the Duke University Medical School. He also is a co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Cultural Initiative at Duke Divinity School, which offers opportunities to students in health professions and to practicing clinicians who are studying for seminary as well. So he's written a lot of different topics over the years, including the philosophy of psychiatric diagnoses, the moral dimensions of combat trauma, and the role of clinician-patient relationships, specifically as that relates to medicine, uh, medication prescribing. He's also written about the way that Christian communities understand mental health and mental illness. So a lot of work that's relevant to this conversation today and grateful to have Dr. Kinghorn here with us. Welcome. Thank you, Dad. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, again, I think it's going to be a, a great conversation. Uh, we have all these different perspectives that we bring to the table. But as I often do on these podcasts, just wanted to start out just checking in with everybody and seeing how you're doing in the midst of everything that's happened the last few weeks, over the last year and a half, and even beyond that. So Pastor Mike, if we could go ahead and, and start with you. Yeah, no, I, I, I am well. I mean, the past uh, 18 months, I think for all of us, has been challenging in different ways. Um, for those of us who are in the church, you know, many have had to reimagine how we do church, you mm -hmm. know, and how we serve the needs of the community and the people who are part of the congregation. And I've been blessed um, because we're at a place where I feel like we were already a little ahead mm -hmm. of the game already. So much of what we did was digital that our virtual uh, ministry and programming was already up. We just had to increase content. So I'm grateful for the amazing team and staff we have at FCBC. On a personal level, I mean, my wife and I are both vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and we also both had uh, COVID. Mm. And we did not have easy bouts with it either. Mm. Um, it was extremely challenging. Um, and I, I will say I was one of the early, we were the early, some of the early people who had it when people didn't know what it was um, in oh. January, we were just extremely sick and oh. she couldn't breathe. And I had the cough. I had pneumonia in both lungs. And it was after everything kind of got chaotic in New York city that we went back and got an antibody test and found mm -hmm. out that we had, we were positive for the antibody. So we oh. knew that when we were sick, that's what it was. Cause it was, it was, it was worse. It, it, it started out feeling like a flu, but it was mm -hmm. 10 times worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was horrific, but I'm grateful. Uh, I, we had it. My son had it. Who lives up here as well. Um, and um, but we 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 came through it. And as a congregation, we're doing well. And personally, we're doing well. So I'm I'm grateful. Grateful. Well, I'm glad to hear, and I appreciate you sharing. You know, so honestly about that path. I mean, amidst the challenges and even going through COVID and not knowing that that's yeah. what it was, I can only imagine. Yeah. All that all all that came with that. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for for sharing so poorly. And I imagine that's also a source of strength to have that testimony about what you've gone through as well. Absolutely. To be able to encourage others at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and especially those, like you said, those who've gone through it and also those who are still fearful, you know, mm -hmm. that's why we really push vaccination. We were mm -hmm. a vaccination site and will be again in the fall. Mm -hmm. um, but it's important in our community. So, yeah. 
That's so, so important. So well said. What about you, Dr. Green? How has this last year and a half and even these last few weeks been for you? Oh, well, it's been a, it's been a, a bit of a mixed bag and mm -hmm. grateful to be on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. um, so um, with regard to work, just super excited about the opportunity that I have to work at the Hope Center. I actually started here during the pandemic. So I started in September mm -hmm. of 2020 um, when I received the invitation from my pastor to take on this new role and excitedly did so. Um, and grateful that it's thriving. We're pretty much offering, which I know we'll have a chance to talk about later, but offering an array of programs to the community. So I'm grateful for that. Um, on a personal note, I've definitely had some personal challenges during the pandemic. I too have lost uh, two family members to COVID, unfortunately, um, and then had some other medical issues um, that I, you know, had to face during COVID. So you know, went in for a surgery um, wow. and found out that I was allergic to anesthesia and ended up in the ICU. Um, and since then, I've actually been seeing an herbalist mm. um, who has really helped me to sort of, you know, stay healthy um, in addition to just, you know, exercising and doing the best around my mental health, but making sure that I'm fueling my body with good stuff and just mm -hmm. looking at my health from a holistic standpoint. So mm -hmm. I'm grateful for where I am right now. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing, sharing so honestly as well. And I think it's great. I mean, you're in a way live, living it by example and talking about really taking that holistic approach and making sure that your your health is good all the way around, even despite those challenges. So it seems in some ways you're, again, also on the other side, just going through. Yeah, and I tell everybody who will listen. So. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Dr. Kinghorn, what about you? Yeah, I am doing okay. Uh, I've been fortunate to have a job this whole time and patients mm -hmm. to see and students to teach and mm -hmm. and uh, reasonably good health and my family's done okay. But uh, I have to say I'm just tired right now, it, both at the end of a semester, but also in the midst of just everything that's been going on. And I, I've just been um, increasingly aware in the last year, really, how not just heavy everything around this is, whether it's uh, a patient of mine who, uh, like the Green, has lost two immediate family members to COVID, uh, mm -hmm. to veterans that I care for at the VA hospital here in Durham who were really upset at what happened on January the 6th and, like, really kind of had their world rocked and mm -hmm. seeing that. Um, to uh, I taught a class on theology and trauma here at Duke this spring. And we tried to continue just to be aware of what was happening in our world and have even this spring, you know, the um, shootings in Atlanta and the repeated ongoing um, killings of people of color, whether it's uh, Dante Wright and more recently Andrew Brown here in North Carolina mm -hmm. and seeing the way that my students are bearing the weight of that and feeling that. And, mm -hmm. and on top of having an ongoing pandemic, it just feels like a really challenging season. So I'm both grateful and also um, just aware of how much is going on all around us. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways and definitely appreciate your awareness of that as well. I mean, you're leading off talking about, and I imagine you do this with your students as well, but your own tiredness. So not to ignore that, but to, to acknowledge. And I think all of us have done that and acknowledge. I mean, clearly have, you know, some haven't gone through COVID as, as Pastor Mike mentioned and you know, Dr. Green also mentioning some of the health challenges, just, just the reality of what we're all dealing with. And I think that goes a long way. Um, I, I imagine that will come from the conversation as well, but I feel like that's often a starting point, just acknowledging the challenges. And then, you know, Dr. King, as you mentioned, 
also acknowledging the challenges your students are going through and empathizing, even if you can't relate to every single component of it, but just being there as that voice and that, that empathetic uh, support to really say, okay, these are challenging times and it's not something that we can just ignore and, and plow through. Um, and I think a lot of ways that ties into this conversation, the intersection of mental health and faith, I'm gonna pass it on to Pastor Mike and Dr. Green to elaborate on, but I would say even in my own experiences, um, in academic settings, in the community, oftentimes there isn't that acknowledgement at the first pass. So, you know, I've talked to students who said, oh, my aunt is struggling with depression. She's being told the only reason she's not getting better is because she isn't praying hard enough. So yes, yeah. acknowledging the power of God, but not acknowledging all the tools we have at our disposal to address those things. But then at the same time, I'll be teaching students who will get very excited about the biology of the brain and how that impacts mental health, but say things like, what are we supposed to do with those people that think a higher power can help them with their mental health challenges or being a part of a faith community. So again, now being totally dismissive about the other side of things. I mean, I think oftentimes there's not enough conversation about how we need to look at those things holistically. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about this conversation and the work that you all um, have been involved in either on the ground or um, as admirers and advocates of the work. And so, you know, Pastor Mike and Dr. Grant, I just wanted to hear a little bit about the journey into that space of even creating that Hope Center. I mean, this is the first faith-based mental health center in Harlem. It's unique in a lot of ways. And I'm curious how all that came about in the first place. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that piece. And when we get to the exciting work of the Hope Center, I'll, I'll let Dr. Green jump on it. Um, the journey really started uh, towards the Hope Center as personal. Um, I suffer with a, a rare disease it's called uh, CVID, Common Variable Immunodeficiency. Mm. And basically, I, I was born with no antibodies, mm. um, with, with a very low life expectancy. And, but what it has meant over the years is numerous infections, numerous hospitalizations, surgeries, you, you name it, near-death experiences, sepsis. I've survived sepsis three times. Wow. Um, two of the three times in, in you know, in science was MRSA, which is the worst bacteria to get. I mean, so over the years, though, what it caused is, is a lot of depression. Mm. You know, when you're battling with chronic illness, chronic sickness, chronic pain, um, it has an impact. And I was doing dealing with all this wild pastoring in many ways, and it got to be a lot. And I found myself in and out of depressive moments. And I never at that time, this is going back into the early 2000s and beyond, never sought out a therapist. I think not that I was against therapy. I just never thought to look for a therapist. I figured, you know, I can handle it. I'm a pastor. I, I preach every week. I teach. I lead people through these moments. I, I can come out of it. And then in 2010 or seven, rather, I was on a trip in to Seattle, Washington. And I was staying in a hotel on the 22nd floor of the hotel and nothing, there was nothing going on that day that seemed strange or different. Um, and I remember going out on the balcony mm. uh, and I literally heard a voice tell me, say to me, um, you know, if you jump, you can survive. That's what I heard. It was the first time I heard anything close to suicidal ideation ever. Voices said, if you jump, you can survive. And I remember 
you know, kind of feeling another presence kind of pull me back into this room off the balcony. And I remember laying in his bed, almost in fetal position, just crying. I didn't know what just happened, but it was very overwhelming because in my entire life, I never thought of that idea. never conceived of it, never entered my mind about the notion of, of taking my own life. Mm-hmm. And I was able to understand that's what was just happening. Mm-hmm. And it was literally a voice as clear as you and I are talking now, Dr. Mm-hmm. Nee, I heard say that if you jump, you can survive. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the first alarm that something is, is, is not, not well. And again, still pushing through it, still fighting through it, still not seeing a therapist while at the same time, people are coming to me for pastoral care and counseling while at the same time, in 2012, uh, Dr. Kinghorn, I was in I was in Durham to preach and got sick on a Wednesday at Duke Medical Center by Friday and spent 14 days at Duke Medical Center with sepsis and I had MRSA and they had no idea what I survived. Wow! And um, when I came out of that in 2012, I remember when I got better, uh, someone wanted to see me about some issues they were dealing with personally, and over the years. We had, the pastors had always gotten, had sessions with people whose issues were beyond our ability to handle. Mm-hmm. We found ourselves always referring mm-hmm. to spaces where they can get mental health care. And I said to myself, one, I need to find a therapist. And then I said, you know, there are people who are coming to the church who, who are in need of care beyond what we're capable of giving. Mm-hmm. So when I started my journey in therapy is when we looked to hire a part-time therapist on staff mm-hmm. um, to deal with some of the issues that were beyond our, our scope as pastors. All of us trained, all of us had, you know, pastoral care, counseling, clinical pastoral education, but there were still things we just could not deal with. Mm-hmm. So we hired her, her name was at the time Joyce Johnson, and it was pretty soon she got swamped, right? She, mm-hmm. she was there and then she got overloaded with mm-hmm. things. But one day, when I was at the church in the lobby, because when you come to the information desk, if, if in the entrance, you know, the reception is like, who are you here to see? Joyce had an office upstairs in the church and I'm sitting in the lobby. The person didn't know who I was. They were not a member of the church. And, but they came in and when the receptionist asked the person, who would they come and see? They, they whispered Joyce's name. Mm. They, they, I perceived in that moment, there was still some shame. Mm-hmm. Like I'm coming here to see someone uh, you know, about some, some issues and, 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 you know, the stigma, you know, well, I'm mm-hmm. not crazy or nothing's wrong, but I noticed them whispering. And I realized at that moment, and this was in 2000, towards the, maybe the beginning of 2013, I said, having this space is not enough. Mm-hmm. I want to have a freestanding space. So people feel comfortable going in because if you come to church and you go to see Joyce, people gonna think you're crazy. That's what people, that's what mm-hmm. I was feeling. Yeah. And, you know, and so I had been looking so we have the Dream Center that you talked about, which is really cutting as you do a lot of programming. But we got the space because of a relationship with one of our trustees, who is also a developer. And when he asked about getting some community support for this project he had, you know, I said, well, look, we're going to give you support. But I got an idea. That first floor of your building, let us get that building. We'll pay rent and we use it for the Dream Center. Well, in 2014... He, he needed support for another space around the corner from the church. I said, listen, let's do the same thing. Let's get this space. And that moment, it was like instant. Let's use this space for a mental health facility. Mm. And that's where it started. Um, and for about a year and a half, they worked on the space. We were able to build it out. And then we had the ribbon cutting in December 
of 2014, um, uh, 16 rather, for the, um, for the Hope Center. And we named it Hope. We had Dream, mm-hmm. and now we had Hope, um, Healing on Purpose and Evolving, where we offered initially, we've changed it, but initially people who, who, who came into the Hope Center and went through the process, we didn't call them clients, mm-hmm. we called them Hope Innovators. You want mm-hmm. to change the language. Um, persons who are creatively um, finding paths towards healing and wholeness. Um, just changing language, changing the culture, changing the dynamic. But initially, when you came and you went through the program with the application, you got 12 free therapeutic sessions, wow. plus follow-up, plus potentially involved in group sessions as well. So it was something that had never been done. I, I mean, you think about the cost of 12 sessions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of therapy, and we were offering this for free initially, we had some people who volunteered. We had a staff, but then we had two volunteers, two women who, who um, it was amazing. They had visited the church and they weren't, they were actually Jewish, mm. but they had been visiting the church of, uh, quite a bit. They mm. really liked the church and they were psychiatrists. And so they offered their services. Wow. Like that first year or so, year or two, one got ill with, with cancer, but they were offering their services free. And because of wow. their presence, they were offered to prescribe medication if necessary. Mm-hmm. So we had our staff uh, of clinicians, plus we had these two psychiatrists volunteering their services every weekend. So it was amazing how wow. things just unfolded and persons started making donations. And we were, I mean, it was just great. Wow. Um, and because I was of the belief, we build this space, people will come mm-hmm. and it was to meet a particular need because, you know, the stigma mm-hmm. in the black community that exists around mental health mm-hmm. and um, mental health issues. And so we wanted to engage in destigmatizing that. And then I, from the pulpit, began mm-hmm. preaching mm-hmm. about my personal battles mm-hmm. with depression and anxiety. And that opened up what I thought if, if the pastor can be transparent if I can talk about it, it'll free other people up to feel, hey, it's okay to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's okay to acknowledge it. And by the way, then we have a space that right. can help you navigate this. So yeah, I'll, I'll stop there now. Wow, that's so powerful. That's amazing to hear to hear that story, you know, just from your personal journey and everything that came yeah. out in the community as well. I think that's so, it's so important that you are, you are acknowledging that from the pulpit as well, because I think that helps people in those moments to know it's not a quick fix. So I'm sure that's no. some of what comes into it as well. I mean, when I shared about that student, basically it's, it's the, the mindset that it hasn't been fixed yet because you're not putting in enough effort in your prayer yeah. life for God to address that. But you mentioned that from the pulpit and so people know the journey. I think that's so, so important. Yeah, and I had those same comments before this. And, you know, I had a woman say to me one time, a, a member of the church, she said, well, Pastor, you know, I, I understand what you're doing. But, you know, I, I got to trust God and I believe, you know, demons. And she went through this whole thing. And I, I asked her, I said, do you have any um, physical ailments? Mm-hmm. And she told me, yeah, she said, I have, I have um, diabetes. Mm-hmm. I said, so is God dealing with that or you got medication? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she said, well, I, I, I take insulin shot. I said, oh, I said, okay. So you trust the doctor's with the diabetes, but mm. you don't trust practitioners with mental health issues. And she just paused <laughs> and she yeah. just paused. And, yeah. and that was a reality. I, yeah. You know, there's no stigma around going to the hospital when you're sick. Mm-hmm. Right. We often talk about that. You break your arm. Nobody's saying, Oh my God, you're going to go to the hospital to get that fixed. No, mm-hmm. but there's a stigma around issues around the spirit, around the mind, around mm-hmm. the soul. 
And and we have to do that work of of really, like I said, demythologizing mm-hmm. and destigmatizing yeah. uh, those issues. And I think the more we do it, and the more we've been talking about it, we've seen a change in the language of people mm-hmm. in the community, and also having a space. It's one thing to talk about it from the pulpit mm-hmm. and to to make it a priority in the church. It's another thing to have a space mm-hmm. that you can say, by the way, here's the therefore. Yeah. Here's the therefore. Therefore, yeah. there's this space. So. Yeah. That's so important. So important. I'm so so uh honored to be, you know, just hearing about the work that you've been doing on the ground this sense to really set this up. I was going to pivot to Dr. Green and hear a little bit about some of that as well. And even just, you know, one of the points that Pastor Mike that you brought up as I was listening to it, it seemed like that tension was ongoing. You talked about the first person who came in who was volunteering, who was overwhelmed. So obviously mm-hmm. there's a need. But well, she was in volunteering. Was, you know, she she oh, was so getting she was, paid. She was getting oh, we paid. were paying. Okay, okay. She was part time. She <laughs> yeah. We I, we wanted to make sure we got good service. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So even and even in, as she's doing that, yeah. being overwhelmed, but then people are still whispering about going to see yeah. her. So it seems like both yeah. of those were kind of happening at the same time. So you know, yeah. Doctor Graham, here, like, how has that moved forward on the ground level as a director? How do you see that play out? Do you feel like you're dealing with both simultaneously are people getting better at acknowledging the need are you still trying to break through the stigma what's that whole process like at this point yes i would say it's a little bit of both right um and so for me um you know my mantra has always been you can pray and go to therapy Mm. right Mm -hmm. um so i'm also very active in the community and always have been right and so people have always known that i'm a mental health clinician or i'm a Mm -hmm. psychotherapist Um, And so having those conversations with people has always been something that's been super easy for me. Right. Mm. Um, And so pastor brought up the, brought up the example of talking to the woman about her medical condition Mm. and would she go to the hospital to seek treatment for that. Right. And that's a great place to start because I think it's helping people to unpack, you know, their thought process around mental health treatment. Right. And Mm. there are all these things that sort of go in there. Um, but part of it also, too, is this, I think, this conspiracy of silence around, mm. you know, these mental health challenges that people have experienced for many, many years um, and haven't really had an opportunity to talk about it. Um, we can talk about the issues around discrimination and racism that have also plagued the mental health system that has mm-hmm. sort of impacted people's ability to trust the, the systems of care that are in place, mm-hmm. um, feeling like they can also seek treatment and places and with people who also look like them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those things sort of go into that. And so I think we we do a good job at keeping the conversation open and transparent and clear and also not taking ourselves too seriously, right? Like just saying, hey, we have this thing here. Um, it's free and it's available. And, you know, I'll say things to folks like, well, where can you go and get something for free, right? How often can you go and do that? And they're like, well, you know, not. So, and then, you know, I may, I may say to them, you know, what are some of the things that are important to you? It's, you know, when I'm talking to some of the millennials who want to have a conversation around, you know, the cost of mental health. And I say, well, you know, how often do you shop? Right. Um, how much did you pay for the, for the last pair of shoes? Right. Um, and the same ways in which you go for brunch or you go shopping, right. It's building um, space into your life and making space into your life mm-hmm. for the things that are important to you. And so how do you prioritize that? And then if you're, Mental health is not a priority. Well, then let's talk about that too, right? So there are always these ongoing conversations around how to open up mm-hmm. um, the door just to have the conversation and to make it welcoming. Um, and so we've done our best to do that here. So 
you know, we offer the sessions. Um, but one of the things that has been important to me um, is making sure that we have a ton of public facing programs as mm. well. Um, and so we have right now implemented what we call our healing conversations on a monthly basis. And we tackle really tough issues at least once a month. Um, and so we've tackled suicide. Mm. We've tackled domestic violence. We've tackled grief and loss actually last month. Um, this month, we're going to be talking about anxiety. And then in June, which will be our last healing conversation, we're going to be talking about the importance of sleep and rest. Um, and what does that mean in, in our daily lives? Um, you know, I've also been able to develop some fantastic partnerships with a bunch of organizations in the community. Mm -hmm. um, we don't see children here. Our folks that the folks that we see here are 18 and over. So it's been important for us to cultivate relationships with places that provide services to adolescents mm -hmm. and children. And so we've been in the process of trying to develop that as well. Um, but one point um, with regard to the need is that when I came here to the Hope Center, we had a waiting list of 76 people. Wow. And some of those folks had been on the waiting list for over a year. Mm. And so one of my first priorities was to sort of look at that list, um, go back to those folks and prioritize like, who was sort of in high need of care services, who was in crisis. Um, and then we were also still in the middle of COVID. And so how could we then provide programming that serves people who were also suffering from loss? Mm -hmm. And so we've been in the process of doing that. Um, so two relationships that we've um, built that I've been so proud to, to participate in is um, our partnership with Columbia University Center for Complicated Grief. So all of my staff here, including the interns, have been trained in complicated grief services. Mm, um, they also get, you know, rigorous suicide training and mental mm -hmm. health counseling training, of course. Um, I'm a field instructor as well, as well as a professor at NYU, and I'm an adjunct faculty there. So um, I get to, you know, make sure that I'm being consistent with the kinds of um, training and teaching mm -hmm. that students need here to be successful clinicians out in the community. Um, we also make sure that we pay attention to, um, you know, issues of race, issues of power mm -hmm. and privilege, all of those things, right? And making sure that the staff here is also quite diverse. Um, and so, you know, we do all of that. We make sure that um, we are paying attention to our own mental health needs. Mm -hmm. um, so when, when Pastor Mike was talking, you know, one of the things that has always been taught to me by my own mentors um, is that, you know, the healers need healing mm -hmm. and the healers need spaces to go as well. And so making supervision um, part of and therapy, you know, a consistent part of your life. And so that's why this year, um, you know, we came up with our, our tagline um, for our theme this year, which is healing is a lifestyle mm. to really cultivate and encourage folks to continue on that path to wholeness and, 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 and that journey to wellness. That's so great. I mean, that's such a holistic approach too. And you're tackling so many things at once, which are so critical. I mean, even, you know, dealing with the stigma on the front end, making sure that you're covering all the different topics that influence mental health, including sleep, uh, making sure that you're, you know, talking about the impact of uh, the racial injustices and racism and, and then partnering with those outside. So I think in so many ways, this, this model that you all have developed is so important and so effective. Um, and so Dr. Kinghorn, I'm actually curious, you know, as someone who's been an admirer and advocate of this work, what, what are some of the things that have stood out to you about just the importance of the work that they're doing um, in Harlem and, and what, what has caught you your eye as someone who has, you know, your, your foot in both worlds, both in a faith community and in, as a psychiatrist? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've been a, a distant admirer of the Hope Center for quite a while. I first learned about Hope Center through the work of my colleague in psychiatry, Sydney Hankerson, 
at Columbia University Mm -hmm. who is doing really unique research, uh, federally funded research on the role of faith communities and especially of churches in depression intervention. And um, I've learned a lot from uh, Dr. Hankerson's work. One of his early uh, published papers, which he published in in the Journal of Urban Health, was an a focus group study with pastors at a, a, a church in New York in Queens. So it wasn't First Corinthian Baptist, but he uh, interviewed a lot of, of uh, pastors around their experience in a predominantly African-American large church in New York City around how they encountered depression. And mm-hmm. these pastors recognized that depression was present in their community. They wanted the church to be a site of support. And they also really helpfully, though, said, uh, we have to think about depression not just as like kind of an individual medical problem that needs treatment, but we need to also situate it in the context of the lived realities of people's lives, of job stress, of financial stress, of racism, of, uh, of problems with education and uh, accessing medical care. And, uh, and it pointed to the way in which churches can actually be sites of outreach and support and connection even more, but partnering with medical systems. But how can churches be uh, do that kind of connecting work and especially uh, just recognizing the way in which mental health problems don't exist in a vacuum? They, they take place in a kind of community and culture and sets of relationships. And, and so when I hear about the Hope Center uh, being situated within a church, made possible by a church, providing pathways to high-quality mental health care, and also though responding to the needs of the local community, which in some ways is the needs of our entire country. I'm just really excited about it and just um, just really have been so excited to see it grow over the years and to hear about its work and uh, to hear more about it through my uh, connections at Duke Divinity School with Pastor Mike. Yeah, that's, that, that's so well said. And it's so encouraging to hear about the work that's being done on multiple fronts um, and some of these connections as well. I know Dr. Hankson has been very well uh, connected to this initiative. And I think you know, there's so much that others can learn as well. And so I'm actually curious, you know, as you all have been moving through this and kind of breaking down some of these barriers and empowering people, are there are there aspects that you think can be expanded and used and applied in other places as well? Is this something that's unique to the environment that you have in Harlem, the relationships there? Or are there principles that you, that you see that could actually be replicated by others in other parts of the country? Well, uh, you know, a few things. One... Um, well, well, two things, actually. One, I've had conversations with other colleagues in ministry mm-hmm. about the Hope Center, you know, and wanting to do this, mm-hmm. um, wanting to try to replicate it in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And the conversation at some point turns into a conversation about church budgets, right? I'll tell you why, because the first question is resources. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to be told, you know, yeah, budgets are moral documents, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say, no, budget budgets are vision documents to me. Mm-hmm. You know, where do you see yourself? Where do you want to go as a church? And the reason why I brought this up is because when we opened the Hope Center for the first few years, there was no public money. It was all church donations that funded it, that staffed it, that kept it going. And what we made a priority for the church initially is that this was important. This was meeting a need in the community. And we, we put our resources where the need is. Mm-hmm. And this was a great need. And, uh, and so the people believed in it, the church believed in it, the leadership believed in it. 
and were able to give to it to make sure that it was able to function and sustain itself. That's the first thing. I think a lot of times in ministry, we do ministry based on ideas, not always need. Mm. And so I had to tell a lot of my colleagues that, um, and, and it became important. Secondly, you know, myself and Dr. Hankerson and others have talked about, you know, using the hope centers, like this kind of spoken wheel model, it can be replicated. I think if more faith-based institutions had this kind of, of, of presence in the community, mm. it could go a long way, again, in, in, in destigmatizing um, the narrative. And, and what you find is that many faith-based institutions want to do it, but they begin talking about resources. Mm. So, you know, I think there are institutions that have the capacity to do it, but I think there are tons of resources out there for people to begin these initiatives. And, but I do think there's a willingness mm. by many clergy. So that's one of my dreams to see mm. hope centers and other places. I've talked with Dr. Green about this, that, you know, how do we, how do we make this happen in, in other parts of the city for now mm-hmm. and then make it something that transcends the city, right? Because it, it serves a great need. Listen, here's the reality. We're doing a great work. Dr. Green and her team are doing a great work but we're still in some ways overwhelmed and we run out of space, right? So it was like when we opened it from within, I would say within the first nine months, we realized we were already tapped out for space, mm. wow. right? So it, it, so we, Dr. Green has talked to me about that, about needing a bigger space, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so that we can offer more services and have a more adequate space conducive for the kind of clinical work that's being done. So I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for these challenge, the challenges we have, mm-hmm. but I'm also grateful for the possibilities. And um, I'm grateful for Dr. Green because I think she not only has the ability, but the vision to make the larger vision come to pass for the Hope Center. So. Mm-hmm. I just want to add too about with regard to, um, you know, resources and, I, you know, I wasn't there in the beginning. I've been connected to First Atlanta Baptist Church since 2006, right, and mm-hmm. working in ministry um, under Pastor Mike for quite a while before I came to the Hope Center. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I will say is that, you know, just beginning the conversations around mental health and seeing what resources are within, you know, your own congregation, right? Because I think you would be surprised about mm-hmm. um, what may come, you know, what may come up. Um, you know, uh, Pastor Mike talked about these two psychiatrists who decided that they wanted to donate their time, mm-hmm. right? So I think just beginning there and having the conversation and being open about the kinds of things that you need and the kinds of things that you'd like to see. Um, I wanted to mention also, too, that with Dr. Hankerson, one of the things that we did at FCBC was um, do this mental health first aid training. Mm-hmm. And that started with um, Dr. Hankerson training our pastors and our deacons initially. Mm. Um, and then opening that up to other volunteers who were interested in just having a basic understanding, sort of a one-on-one on mental health first aid and sort of how to intervene in a crisis, right? Mm. And so you don't necessarily always have to have experts on hand. Mm. That's a great place for you to, you know, for you to start, right? And then that sort of develops into other things. And so, you know, one of the things that we're doing now um, in partnership with Dr. Hankerson um, is uh, in June, we're going to be embarking on a study that focuses on understanding the experiences of depression in Black men. Mm-hmm. And so we're really looking forward to that because we know that will give us some additional really good information about how to provide 
uh, resources and services and engage um, men overall. So, you know, I think just, again, starting the conversation, seeing what resources you have with it and just starting, you know, making the commitment to start somewhere. Yeah. I think it's so great that you both, you know, really pulled that out. About that. And I want to add to that. Mm-hmm. If you think about, I mean, when this was before the Hope Center was really an idea, we had uh, Joyce Johnson, Ms. Johnson, and Dr. Hanks and I would have numerous conversations. So when we did the mental health first uh, responders kind of training, mm-hmm. we had almost 300 people that ended up being trained. Wow. Right. And and it was amazing because then you realize not only was there a need, but it was an interest from the community mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. and to be a part of this. And it, it was amazing over a period of some months, these trainings that took place. But the amount of people who came out, I was surprised by the numbers because wow. I didn't know it would be that many people. But many people want to be part of this, part of these these kind of healing efforts. So I mm-hmm. just had to note that because it was really impressive when we first started that with Dr. Hankerson. Yeah, that's great. That was actually going to be my next question because I was curious just what the reception had been like, you know, as we talked about just people having that hesitancy, whether people were open to that first aid training, mental health first aid training, they feel like they needed it. But I mean, just those numbers that you mentioned, it seems like both the need and the desire were yeah. really there, which I think is outstanding. Dr. King, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on some of this as well. You know, some of these topics that we're talking about, you know, within the Harlem community, what you've seen, you know, in other parts of the country or even nationally in terms of one, is there an openness to these conversations or are people still resistant, you know, either in the faith community or in the medical community um, to really have these integrated conversations? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the Hope Center is such a great model of success, even though I know there's ongoing challenges around growth and sustainability. Uh, it might, there are examples in other parts of the country uh, of mental health centers and, and efforts that are church-led. Uh, in my experience, they tend to be successful when three things are present. One, you, you got to have a committed church leadership. That often leads from uh, personal experiences of church leaders, and it shouldn't be housed in just one person, like one pastor who's the champion, but it needs to be something that it's embraced by the community. You got to have a, a specific leader of the initiative that has the right kind of clinical wisdom and training and skills. And I think both of those things are well represented on our call today for Pastor Mike and Dr. Green. And you also have to have a center that understands its community and the needs of its community and is responding to specifically what's present in the community. And so these Efforts tend to look different in different places, in different Mm -hmm. cities, depending on what the needs are. Uh, With respect to the broader questions, I I think, you know, around how conversations about mental health are happening in churches, and I'm interested in Pastor Mike Green's perspective on this, um, you know, there's certainly a a stereotype out there that churches are not safe spaces to talk about mental health and mental illness. Mm -hmm. And that stereotype has grounding in reality. It's still often the case that that's true. I think over the last 10 or 15 years, actually, I've noticed a lot more willingness of people to talk and engagement of churches and books being written and things being podcasts and things being published, where Christians are talking about their own experience of mental illness, uh, where uh, Christians are calling the church to be more active and engaged. And so that's all really good. And uh, that's happened in a variety of different churches. Church context has happened in a variety of different ways, uh, including in uh, uh, Black church settings. So uh, Monica Coleman's book, Bipolar Faith, has been something that uh, a lot of my students have found really helpful uh, in uh, destigmatizing mental illness in uh, the Black community. Uh, and I think that all of that's really important. I think, I think again, kind of going back to Dr. Hankerson's work, uh, uh, I think one of the challenges is when the church does begin to talk about mental health, 
problems, how not to make it just a matter of individual people having problems, mm. but how do we how do we both recognize that mental illness and mental health challenges are deeply individual and we can provide help to individuals and to families and also to locate them in a broader social cultural context, like mm. what's happening in our with our policies and with our programs and with our where communities are structured and things like housing that might give rise to that. And I think that's where some of the conversations around church and mental health need to expand some to to have a kind of a broader social perspective. So it's not just a matter of kind of individual treatment seeking, although that's mm-hmm. really important. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And it's helpful to hear some of those those parallels and just to know what you're equipping your students with as well. And I think you know all these pieces of conversation are so so powerful. I'm curious, you know, for those who are listening from two sides, who may be listening, who may be a member of a faith community, a member of a church, and are listening and saying that all these things sound great and they sound like they're great initiatives and it's good to be able to have the vision and the plug into resources. But those who feel isolated and don't know where to start. So pe- people who may have, you know, tried to approach questions of mental health within the church and feel like they're getting pushed back and they don't know where to go to. Do any of you have advice for someone in that situation about how to move forward? And then, you know, at the same time, what if that person is actually a leader? So someone who's in a leadership position, but feels like the leadership is not in line with them. Where, where do those individuals and how do they, how do they really plug in to really get to a better place? Um, I, I, I think, you know, here's the reality. There are a lot of churches, and we've all alluded to this earlier. There are a lot of churches um, where we have over-spiritualize what we know to be mental health issues. And because of that, and because many churches still operate within certain theological traditions Mm. and certain theological frameworks that tragically don't make room for the possibility that there's something here at work beyond the demonic. Mm. It is amazing how today in 2021, that with all the data, with all the research, with all the work that is being done around mental health issues, that there are still people who approach this with a primitive frame of mind and and who do not acknowledge Mm. um, that there are issues at stake that are not, that are beyond the the narrative of 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 demon possession or mm. we need to pray this away or we need to pray fast and tarry and all these things so i think for people who are in those kind of spaces one i don't think that they ought to discount the reality that they live or know mm. because what happens is that when you enter certain spaces that do not acknowledge these realities there is a sense of dismissiveness that can mm-hmm. be destructive mm-hmm. um, and even disastrous for people, not just who want to talk about it or acknowledge, but people who are living in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Because what, what churches have to also acknowledge is that we have participated in those who have been silenced mm-hmm. and remain silent in their suffering because of sometimes the uh, lack of empathy and even the punitive language that emerges from some of our faith institutions. So what I would tell someone is do not let the behavior of a particular institution become definitive for the possibilities of what can happen. And like I, it's the same thing with church. You have to find a space and a place that values that, that affirms this, 
that not only affirms the reality of, of mental health issues, but also is doing what Dr. Green alluded to earlier. You can pray and get therapy. You can be a deep believer in God and seek treatment. Um, and I'm a witness to that. And I also think that one of the other things that have to happen is, you know, we've, I, I've gone, I've gone, I've been on panels, I've had talks, but I think there needs to be gatherings as well. And, and we're doing something like that. Dr. Greenhouse is doing something like this in the fall, but gathering of clergy, being able to pull clergy together, um, <clears throat> whether it is in, even in seminary, you know, and I don't, you know, I'm a proud graduate of Duke Divinity School, but I don't know if Warren uh, Kinghorn, Dr. Kinghorn was there when we had this conversation. You have many divinity schools that no longer make a requirement pastoral care and counseling to graduate with a degree in, in divinity, which is amazing because now um, you have persons who are leading institutions who may not have had even the, a modicum of understanding mm -hmm. of issues around mental health and mental wellness. So, I mean, those are some ways, but getting clergy together to begin to hear narratives, because what you will discover, clergy too suffer in silence yep. because of the expectation um, that people have of clergy to be the problem solvers, the healers. But as Dr. Green alluded to, there comes a time when the healers need healing to deal with their own psychic fractures. Mm -hmm. And I'll give it to you anecdotally, a, a, what really triggered me in a major way to, to, to really commit to this initiative of the Hope Center was a friend of mine, a good friend of mine that I went to college with, had another friend that I knew marginally though, mm -hmm. and I knew of him. And uh, on a Sunday morning, he had two services at his church, an eight, eight o'clock and an 11 o'clock service. And um, on this particular Sunday, his family, his wife and children, two children were at home getting ready. They missed the first service and were coming to the 11 o'clock service. So he goes to church. He preached the eight o'clock uh, sermon for the service. He went home between services. They didn't live far from the church. And his wife and kids were getting re were ready. And he said, you all go ahead. I'll meet you at the church. I have to do a couple of things. And so when the wife and the children left to go to church, um, he's getting ready to preach the 11 o'clock sermon and left the house, went in his car, went in the, in the driveway, took out a gun and shot himself in the head. So after preaching the eight o'clock mm. service, he committed suicide, mm. right? And what was amazing is, is that talking to my friend um, that at the funeral, no one mentioned suicide. Mm. No one mentioned that there was some kind of depression going on because he had been battling depression for some time and hadn't really only shared it with a few friends. There was as if he just mm. died of natural causes mm. and no conversation during or no con after or before about what this man had been suffering with. Mm. That is because the family was still hesitant and fear, I imagine, of the stigma connected mm. that a pastor, because ideas, if you trust God, mm. if you believe in God, why, and you know, you lean into God in prayer, why would you need to commit suicide? And so the people surrounding him mm -hmm. still bought into that narrative and were almost ashamed mm -hmm. to speak about the fact that this pastor committed suicide. There, um, if you look at some of the numbers, I know Dr. King, I mean, some years ago, I think Duke had done a study about the number of clergy mm -hmm. who are actually committing suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, and the clergy, amount of clergy studies show about who suffering depression. And I mean, it's, it is amazing. But again, 
if there's any group of people who are suffering in silence, it is pastors mm. who have these great expectations heaped upon them from congregations that they're almost invincible and nothing can penetrate the strength that they have been endowed with by God. And so they suffer in silence. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so important. Yeah. So important. And I, I appreciate you, you bringing that out and just, I mean, so, so much that needs to be done. Is that something that you all have tried to tackle head on? In the work in the Hope Center, I mean, what would you what do you feel like is, is different about what you're doing there? Um, I would say directly in terms of clergy, no. But I think what we've been doing in the Hope Center, uh, I, I, I like what what Dr. Green. I wanted to she'll talk more about it. But there's clinical work. But I think where a lot of the traction has taken place with regard to changing the narrative is a lot of the public facing work she talked mm. about. Um, I think that is to me, um, there's no, that's where a lot of the weight mm -hmm. of the potential we have for impact um, really goes. And I, I would love to her to expound on that more because of what mm -hmm. that means. When we, when we have these programs, these wellness check-ins and the mm -hmm. like, and I let her talk more about that. I think it goes a long way in terms of the public realizing mm -hmm. that this institution is, is about more than just saying, hey, if you have something going on mentally, come over to us. No, it's about life and, mm -hmm. and, well, and wellness and well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so on that note, Dr. Green, how, how are people responding to the public-facing component? Um, our, our response, I think, has been really great. Um, I would say at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the Hope Center engaged in two um, virtual opportunities that both happened on Facebook. So we started doing mindfulness moments, mm. so 30, 30 minutes of mindfulness, uh, based practices. So anything from breath work to um, yoga to meditation. Um, so that happens every Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And then every Thursday, we have our wellness check-ins. Again, mm -hmm. those are virtually as well. And people are able to just pop on and just mm -hmm. sort of get a word, an encouraging word um, for 15 to 20 minutes from someone. And we have an array of people that participate. So they're either pastors, they might be a motivational speaker. They, they are our interns, our clinical interns here. Mm -hmm. um, um, I've done a couple when I have to. Um, but we invite folks who have, you know, just sort of like upbeat personalities and then also mm -hmm. clinicians to, to join us um, to do those virtual moments twice a week. And those have been great. Um, we've also partnered with an organization called Mixed Fitness. So they've been joining us because they are um, a group of wellness and fitness instructors who come on once a month and participate um, in our virtual mindfulness moments and share mm -hmm. something with us. So whether it's fitness, whether it's stretching, whether it's um, um, uh, tapping meditation um, for anxiety. Um, so it's been great. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback on that. And also too, those, um, those uh, sessions live on Facebook and mm -hmm. so people can share them or they can watch them as often as they'd like. Mm -hmm. um, so those have been fantastic for us. And so we, we've, um, we're trying to think about, you know, how do we continue to continue to offer these things mm -hmm. as we move sort of out of the pandemic and the world opens up a little bit more. Right. You know, what does that look like now that people have to go in? Right. Um, the other things that we've been doing that are public facing are just um, doing groups. So we've had some fantastic response to our group. So we did a group for new and expectant parents and mm. an eight week group that sort of focused on a, on a, on a array of um, different issues that are important to, to, to moms. 
um, whether it's, you know, getting ready for baby, postpartum depression, mm. um, understanding the, the ways in which you can get care, including adding a doula, which is important because um, for, for particularly for women of color, black women, um, there's an issue around maternal mortality rates. Right. And so we want to figure out how to support them around that. And as well as, you know, their maternal mental health. Um, we pr- provided a CBT based skills group mm-hmm. as well that actually has been our most popular group to date. Um, and again, all of our services are free. Um, for May, we're going to be doing Wellness Wednesdays. Um, so that's going to be a four week series. And then in June, we have something just for the guys that's going to be focused on unmasking masculinity. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be led by our male therapist here. Um, and we perhaps may get another pop in. So, um, and then we just finished our Hope Center weekend where uh, Pastor Mike and our um, in-house male clinician were able to focus on um, a men's talk. Mm-hmm. So we're figuring out ways in which we can, you know, again, bump up the, the mm-hmm. public facing opportunities mm-hmm. um, because we know that people may not necessarily be ready to start individual therapy. Mm-hmm. But in all of those opportunities, we certainly make the pitch for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we provide resources. So we have a, a, a number where folks can text to get services. We always provide our national suicide hotline number where folks can call. And then at, you know, at any um, given point, we provide resources to all of the groups in the program. Um, that we provide. So we try to continue to keep the conversation mm-hmm. going um, and remind folks that, you know, services are here at free here at the Hope Center and that they can call and or go online and sign up to, to get an appointment and it's free mm-hmm. and confidential. And so yeah. that is, I think, the important messages that we try to try to share consistently so that folks know that there's a resource available. Yeah. And again, that's so across the board in terms of topics and all those pieces. I think that's that's wonderful. How are people walking into that space? I mean, is there, are people walking in kind of in a, you know, are you creeping in, don't want to be seen? Are people open and enthusiastic? Is it a mixture of both? Because I mean, you talked about that, some of the conversations that you have trying to break that stigma. I mean, there's so many rich resources you're providing. I'm just curious how people are, how are they entering in in the first place? Yeah. So everyone's virtually entering in. True. <laughs> <laughs> Our doors aren't open right now, yeah, although, right. you know, there, there's a, a number of the staff who were here um, mm-hmm. during the week. Um, so our interns, our executive assistant, myself, were here during the week. Um, but all of our services are virtual um, and people can actually call so they can call and get mm-hmm. a live person and have mm-hmm. an opportunity to speak with someone or they can go on and sign up confidentially. Um, and then I go ahead and assign someone um, to a to a therapist, sign a potential innovator to a therapist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they go ahead and get a phone call, an email. So we do about three to four outreach attempts mm. um, in, in, in an effort to get them engaged into therapy. Um, and then if not, they go back onto the waiting list because we continue to have a waiting list. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and even with you know myself, we also have a psychologist. Um, we work with Dr. Hankerson, who's a psychiatrist. And mm-hmm. then you know we've had nine interns. So even with nine oh, interns, wow. Um, and the clinical staff, we still had a significant waiting list. So, you know, that's how we offer the groups too, right? So people right. have an opportunity to get engaged. Right. So. Well, that's great. And in a lot of ways, it seems like, I mean, in some ways, the virtual piece may have helped to give people that space to not, I mean, not that the stigma doesn't have to be dealt with at some point, but just to really mm-hmm. to be able to enter in. And I would imagine that having the experience may also help as people are getting exposed to all these resources, it may even help break down that stigma and make other opportunities uh, going forward. So, and as you hinted, I guess that will be a challenge coming back into the world in a sense to see how that dynamic will, will go forward. 
Yeah, um, I, I, I certainly think that virtual programming is here to stay, right? Um, I don't think that we'll ever go back to, you know, non-virtual services, whether it's for medical appointments or for mm-hmm. mental health appointments. Um, I think we've all had some, you know, a major learning curve during the pandemic around, mm-hmm. you know, how do we provide these services, good mm-hmm. quality services in a virtual space? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I would say prior to the pandemic, you know, I was probably a therapist that was on the fence about, you know, being in the room mm-hmm. um, with someone because of all the things that you receive um, from one another as you're working towards your wellness journey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly been able to do that in a virtual space, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. So we've all been we've all been zooming. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. That makes sense in a lot of ways. And you know, even thinking back to you know those individuals who may feel like they don't have that support in their own local community. I don't know if you've seen that at all from people from other faith communities, you know, again, getting back to what Pastor Michael mentioned, who feel like they can step into this and maybe a different faith community that has moved the conversation forward and that has some of those pieces available. So I think, you know, if those things are are options for people as well, that can also provide a lot of opportunity that wasn't there in the past in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been able to do some presentations um, with some communities of faith um, whether it's through the, our, the mayor's office or the um, consortium through mm-hmm. um, one of the hospitals. And so, you know, folks, I think, are a little bit open to having me come and present and talk about the Hope Center mm-hmm. and the services that we provide here. And while our, you know, um, Pastor Mike shared that the Hope Center was originally created to provide services to the congregation, um, you know, we don't turn anyone away. Mm-hmm. And so we have mm-hmm. people who um, are receiving services who are, you know, members of our, our FCBC community, but they may be in Paris um, or Germany or mm. Ireland. And mm. so, you know, we're, I'm excited that we're global and yeah. that, you yeah. know, folks can, you know, touch base and get, and get treatment no matter where they are. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's, that's so powerful and expansion in some ways as well. So, was, I mean, there's so, this is such a rich conversation, so many pieces to, to pull out and, Again, I'm just grateful for you know some of the practical points you've talked about as well, because I think for our listeners, a lot of those will go a long way, specifically for those who feel isolated in their specific situations. Um, but as we continue, as we start to wrap up, uh, Dr. Kinghorn, I was going to ask you, you know, from your perspective um, as someone, again, on both sides, both as a psychiatrist and a theologian who's working in Divinity School, and as someone who's admired the work of the Hope Center, what what do you? What is giving you hope in the work that you're doing yourself, and in the work that you're seeing Pastor Mike and, and Dr. Green doing in terms of how we're moving things forward? Uh, it's a it's a great question. I think I I am feeling. Uh, I think it's important to ho- hold hope and challenge together. Mm-hmm. That uh, mm-hmm. you can only really understand what hope is when you are willing to see the enormity of challenge. I mm-hmm. uh, and. And I think that both uh, in terms of what we've been describing today and in terms of Christian faith, I think that there is, we have a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on one hand, I think that the challenges are immense and especially the challenges in the pandemic are immense mm-hmm. and everything that's happening mm-hmm. in the world all around us. Uh, I also though think that uh, that it's tempting in the midst of big challenges to hit despair, to think like, this is just the way it's going to be. Uh, we mm-hmm. just have to hunker down. We just have to push through. And I think our, our Christian faith uh, teaches us that we are loved by God before all else and that humans are created with dignity and in the image of God and that uh, and 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 also that God is already doing the work of healing before us and around us and that uh, we don't generate this ourselves through our own like energy and time and you know as if we're creating but we're we're participating in God's ongoing healing work in the world and so as a as a psychiatrist who's also a Christian, I want to say, how do I just 
kind of join in that lane to like join in the work that the Holy Spirit is already doing in the world. And that uh, takes maybe some of the felt pressure off of me, but it also puts pressure on me to like continue to kind of seek out that space in that area. Um, and so I think, and I also think that, that I, uh, as a psychiatrist, I can often get in the mode of fixing, like patients presenting to me with a problem, I got to fix them. Mm. And I think as the, our faith gives us a, a, a different kind of frame that we are not machines that need to be fixed, but we are those who are on a journey uh, from God to God. And that this, this life is a kind of journey uh, through life to God. And, and we walk, we ourselves are on a journey and anyone whom we try to help or to minister to or with is also on a journey. So we walk as wayfarers alongside others on a journey. And so we can ask ourselves like what's needed right now for the journey. And that makes it very practical because mm -hmm. what's needed might be a medication or what's needed might be a course of ECT or TMS or what's needed might be a 12 session course of psychotherapy or what's needed mm -hmm. might be a men's group or what's needed might be a meal or to get out of an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that, that being a Christian gives me permission to think mm -hmm. broadly about those kinds of things and to and and hope that uh, that this work didn't start with me or us or any of us on this uh, episode. It doesn't end with us, but it's going on, and we get a chance to participate in that. And that gives me hope. And then just to see witnesses like Pastor Mike and Dr. Green and others in other places doing really creative work. I look at that and I think, man, this is so deeply needed. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be able just to see that unfold and to celebrate it is something that I think is just really profoundly encouraging. Wow. That's so well said. And I just love that approach to you and the framework of really just looking at things holistically and bringing all aspects and all tools to the table. So definitely appreciate you sharing that. And I know you're being humble, but I know you're deeply involved in that work in so many ways as well. So deeply appreciate it for the way that you're, you're doing that and the way that you're impacting the next generation of folks who will be doing this both as clinicians, as psychiatrists, as pastors and teachers. So also just want to acknowledge that and make sure that, yeah, that's acknowledged and known to our audience as well. Thank you, Dudney, and all of us. I think you're in that role in on this on this call. So thank mm -hmm. you, Dr. Green. What about you? You know, even that you know that juxtaposition goes back to what you mentioned at the beginning about even your own personal challenges in the midst of the hope that you have uh, as a Christian and the hope that you're providing in your work. How do you continue to think about that going forward? So, um, you know, Dr. Kinghorn said it so so perfectly too. Um, I think about how do we do this um, work and how are we call to do this work, and we're always called to do it in relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what really is at the heart of what we're trying to do in, in, in therapy and groups on this healing journey is that I'm walking alongside you in this relationship mm -hmm. on this healing journey, and you know how can I support you um, on this, and how do I learn, right? Because you know. I tell folks all the time when they come here and they, you know, Dr. Kinghorn mentioned, you know, we want to fix, but also our clients or our innovators expect us, expect us to fix it, right? Um, and so I, I often say to people, well, you're the expert on your own mm. life, right? I'm here to listen. I'm here to maybe pick out some things that maybe you didn't, you weren't aware of, or um, to challenge you in new and different ways or expand your thinking in ways. Um, but you're the expert on that. And, and we're both learning in this space together. Um, and so I think that's an important um, lens to have in working with with people who are on mm -hmm. this journey to healing. Um, and then also just continually thinking about, you know, how do I personally intentionally cultivate spaces of joy? Mm. 
what does that look like for me on a daily and consistent basis? Right. And I don't, sometimes I don't do it every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But reminding myself to be intentional about it, um, reminding the people around me to be intentional about it um, and holding myself accountable. Mm. Right? So. Yeah. That's so well said. I love that, that relational piece and holding ourselves accountable to joy. I mean, I think that goes, that goes such a long way. Pastor Mike, to, to wrap up, there's so much that's been said here. Um, I guess not even just hope for yourself, but you know, if you'd be able to encourage our listeners too in ways to continue to find hope, because I'm sure there are those who are listening who are struggling and who are trying to find a way out. Any, any uh, words you'd want to speak to them directly? Yeah, there's a, a, a many years ago, a line I heard or I read by the late um, Howard Thurman, who has served as one of my own spiritual and theological mentors along my journey as a believer and as a mm-hmm. pastor. And he was frequent to say that the contradictions of life are not final. And I think in these past 18 months, we've seen many harsh realities that have sought to, um, in some places, assault life or undermine life and have given birth birth to many, um, many realities that many of us did not know were even possibilities for us, meaning depressive moments, um, moments filled with anxiety that this pandemic brought to the forefront. But I think it's always a good reminder to tell people, for me personally, that those contradictions are not final. They do not hold the final word. They are not definitive on our lives, that we have not only power through God, but transcendent power to overcome and see our way through these kinds of seasons. One of our pastors preached a sermon last Sunday and she focused on um, Psalm 23 and, and the particular verse when the psalmist says, David in particular, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That that confidence that the writer exhibits, that, that um, audacity is shaped by an experience with God for thou art with me. And I think at the end of the day, for believers who are finding themselves dealing with mental health challenges, we cannot forget the presence of God because it is through God, I think, that resources emerge. It is through God that opportunities come to the forefront. And it is also through God that new and innovative pathways towards healing and wholeness become visible. Mm. So those contradictions are not final. The best is all is yet to come, and it does not appear what we shall be. We trust that we're being led and guided and directed by a God who, at the end of the day, wants to see us to be the best versions of ourselves. Mm. Wow, so powerful, so well said. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm I'm just in awe of just you know everything that's that we've gone through and even what's happened in this last hour during our conversation and, you know, what's been happening over the years at the Hope Center um, and grateful, grateful for uh, the trust that you all have put in God and one another to be able to walk in relationship, like Dr. Green said, in a lot of ways and walk yeah. in relationship with those in your community. I think that's, it goes a long way. And I'm sure that it's, uh, it's important to the community and acknowledged even in times when it, when it's challenging. So that, yeah. that gives me hope just even hearing, hearing this story today and these stories that you all shared. So, Thank you so much, Pastor Mike, Dr. Green, Dr. Kinghorn, for 
jumping on the Addy Hour podcast. I know this is going to be one of those that people are going to be able to go back and listen to. And I appreciate the way you've spoken so poignantly to our listeners um, as well and been so real and honest at the same time. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for having us. This has been great. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity just to share and be a part of this conversation. Thank you so much. Well, great being with all of you. And for all of our listeners, stay tuned for some upcoming episodes of the Addy Hour. We'll continue just like we did today to really dig deep into some of these topics and really have real and honest conversations that I think can empower us and encourage us all. So until next time.